The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good morning, everyone. A few weeks ago, I gave a first part of a two-part series of talks, and I'd like to give the second today. There is a teaching in the early Buddhist tradition that someone who becomes mature in the practice becomes independent in the Dharma. And the word Dharma here can mean um, many things. Uh, it can mean independent in the teachings, and so you kind of don't, no, no longer need to listen to Dharma talks and, <laughs> or maybe give them. And, um, but uh, the Dharma also means the truth. So to become independent in the truth. Um, it's a very powerful statement that you're becoming independent in the truth, to live in the truth. I um, went to San Quentin on Friday and um, met with uh, a program there called, a uh, year-long program called uh, Guiding Rage into Power. And there were 28 inmates in this program and uh, most, I think all of them I think were lifers and uh, 21 of them uh, there were 20, of those 28 men I don't know, you know exactly how it all added up but 21 of the men or tw there were 21 murders committed by those 28 men it was quite something to be in a room of so many people who had committed murder and one of them uh, he said a lot of moving things. But one of them said that facts are different than the truth. And he said, I believe he was talking about himself because he was quite, he was quite uh, open as part of this process he was going through about what he had done. And he said, uh, the fact of having murdered someone is different than the truth. And because if you come and uh, it, uh, the fact is, uh, he was talking about the context of it's different, the fact is one thing. The other thing is if you come and admit it. And if you admit it, then you're speaking the truth. And there's a kind of, so he was, for him, it was very important, this distinction. The truth is somehow to own up to it, to live in the truth, to not, you know, the fact can be, if you can be denying it all you want, it might still be a fact. So to be independent in the, with the truth, in the truth. And so uh, in um, another way it's said is someone who practices mindfulness practice to the point of mature mindfulness, um, they uh, dwell independent in the world, not clinging to anything at all. Becoming independent in the world, not clinging to anything at all. And so a few weeks ago when I gave the first part, I talked about becoming uh, independent in such a way that consciousness or awareness is not dependent on anything. And I talked about the advice that was given to a man who was dying, and it was a guided meditation offered in the, in the ancient, ancient texts. Mm -hmm. And the way that it was offered was uh, systematically going through all the different things that awareness could be aware of, and the guided meditation was, don't cling to that, don't cling to that. And in the context of someone, who di someone dying, 
um, you know, it's maybe kind of, hopefully, a little bit more obvious that uh, it's kind of not really much point to cling anymore then. Uh, you know, if you're facing your, and he died, as soon after this guided meditation was given, this, the, this man died. The idea being that this is a really good time to learn to let go, when you have to let go anyway. So it's a teaching, let go of everything, don't cling to anything. The uh, question is, is this an okay way of living in life in general? So the challenge some people have about this teaching about uh, not clinging to anything whatsoever, not being dependent on anything, is that, um, I, that you know, how do I live my normal life? Or isn't it okay to be dependent? I mean, we live an interdependent life, and somehow to be independent of others, independent of the world, somehow must mean that we're somehow cut off from the world or aloof from the world or, you know, dwelling independent of the world means that you're, you know, just, you know, probably living in a cave someplace. <laughs> and it's not really realistic. And this is, a, this is a, I think, a very um, appropriate concern to have about these kinds of teachings. Uh, because, in fact, our life is deeply interdependent to each other, deeply, the idea of relate, being related, being interconnected, is very deep. And uh, it's inconceivable having a human life without having, um, the, you know, living in this kind of amazingly interdependent world where our very life, being alive, is dependent on so many other people and beings and things around us. And to realize that interdependent nature of our life is considered to be one of the great truths, one of the great realizations that is very meaningful for many people to realize and experience. So how do these two things work together? The idea of being independent in the truth, independent in this world, not clinging to anything, and being in the world and, and relating to people. So in a sense, last time I gave this talk, first half was about doing this internally with one's own consciousness and awareness. And then how does that, now the second part is, how does this relate to the world in which we live in? And in the Buddha taught mindfulness practice, one of the instructions he gave is uh, to be mindful both internally and externally. And one of the ways of understanding this is internally means, you know, your, your own body, your own impulses, your own thoughts and beliefs and desires and intentions. You'd be aware of this whole inner landscape that's here. And externally means um, to be aware of other people to be aware of the situation of other people and be tuned in and pay attention to other people. When I was uh, studying in the Zen monasteries, one of the nice ways, we were never told, to, as far as I remember back in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, the word mindfulness wasn't so popular yet. And now it's like it's always been there in Buddhism, right? But I don't remember them teaching mindfulness per se uh, uh, in, in Zen in the 70s. They might have, but uh, uh, they had talked about it other ways, with other ways in which you picked it up. And there were sometimes these particular meals when we ate together in a dining room meal table, where it was kind of understood that you, when you ate, you would pay attention to the people around you, and if they needed more food or more water or something. And uh, that was just part of the training that I got, you know, that you, you don't just eat your food, and if you want more food, you grab it. Then <laughs> you say, you know, pass the butter. <laughs> it's just me, me, me. But rather, part of the uh, sphere of attention is also the people at the table with you. And you're noticing them, noticing when they finish their water, notice when they 
you know, they'd finished their bread or something, and if the bread basket was next to you, you would offer them. Here, would you like some more? They are paying attention to the world around you. Um, and when I went and practiced in Japan, uh, Japanese monasteries, I was also kind of built into the whole system, is that you were actually paying attention very acutely to the people around you, and you took them into your field of, of vision. So this idea of practicing mindfulness internally and externally, externally, taking in the world around you. So, how, what happened? So, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, a person came to me uh, with asking a very important question for her. I, 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 my answer didn't satisfy her. But uh, she wanted, uh, what she wanted actually was not so much a question, kind of a question, she wanted a guarantee. And she wanted a guarantee that if she practiced this path all the way to freedom, the complete freedom that's offered, not clinging to anything in the world, that uh, she would end up being compassionate. Mm. Or her compassion would remain. So this is part of this you know, fear, this concern. You know, if I, you practice this non-clinging, this not being independent, that you're not going to care anymore. For her, caring was so important that she wanted that guarantee from me. And uh, so I gave her the most honest answer I could give, and that, that I'm capable of giving. And I said that um, generally, that's what happens. Maybe 99% of the time. But I can't give you the guarantee, because I don't know what's appropriate for any individual. I don't know. There's so many different kinds of people, so many different kinds of minds and the way they function, so many different hearts so many different ways of being in this world that I don't want to pigeonhole people into this category that you're supposed to be compassionate. Then you have to end up with a compassion police. <laughs> you know, you end up with the idea that you're sp you have to fit yourself into this idea, you have to be this way. And we know that, you know, there's all kinds of people and I like to think of many of the people who have what sometimes are called disabilities or even illnesses in our society, um, psychological ones, or even physical ones, I think it's quite unfortunate that we even view it that way sometimes, and that um, they're full human beings in their way. And so people who have, for example, dyslexia, sometimes it's, uh, it's looked upon as a, as, a, you know, as a disability or an illness or something, you know. But I think that uh, it's a whole other way of looking at it, uh, or attention deficit disorder, that they, they can be seen as gifts. It's just another way of being in the world, another way of functioning in the world. My son has dyslexia, or, or you see, at least he did. He might have outgrown it when he was a kid, when he was young. And, um, but the way he was told that he had dys that his dyslexia, uh, he didn't know, he didn't know, he was in a school where you didn't have to learn to read until you felt like it. And so he didn't know there was any problem with his reading. But his mother noticed there was some issues, so strange, she had him, she looked into it. And, um, and so by, she educated herself, and by the time she learned that, uh, told him that you know, he, was, had this, he, had, he was, had a dyslexic mind and that he was going to do the special program, it was in, introduced to him as if he has a gift. And, um, and so he did this program with this man who was dyslexic, and the man was kind of his hero for a little while. He was this cool guy, and I have dyslexia, he has dyslexia, it was pretty cool. And, um, 
And so the idea that, you know, a gift, these things. And um, I, was, I was struck many years ago by an article in The Economist, of all places, about researchers studying attention deficit disorder. It's called disorder, right? It's very, very unfortunate. And, um, and they said that 10% uh, of most populations of human beings, societies, about 10% of people have this attention deficit thing. And um, so they studied, went to, um, uh, I guess, Kenya somewhere, and studied the bush people. And, they, uh, and sure enough, the bush people, among them, 10% of them had this particular kind of mind, that we call in our society attention deficit disorder. And uh, they, were, they, were, they were quite happy and integrated and nice in their life when they lived in the bush. And when the same people moved to the cities, uh, uh, their lives started falling apart. It was much more difficult. And so the researchers speculated that uh, evolutionarily in the ancient world, society benefited when 10% of the population had what we call attention deficit disorder. Because they had, they, their minds were a certain kind of gift. They operate in a certain way that was very helpful uh, in the bush, hunting, gathering, searching, exploring new things, paying attention. And some certain, you know, 10% of the village had that kind of tribe, had that kind of minds. It benefited everyone. It wasn't a problem. But, you know, our society has changed and we're living in these cities with straight lines and straight, straight texts and letters and all that. And so th th those minds don't work so well. And I've known of people who have attention deficit and uh, so-called thing and they do really well as rangers, as park, park rangers. Like somehow they're out there and all that. So why do we call it a disorder? Just another way of being. Um, so compassion, you know, to say that everyone's supposed to end up being compassionate, I think it's disrespectful for all the different ways in which minds operate. Maybe there are certain minds which, when they're completely free, free of suffering, they're happy. Maybe compassion, for some reason, not there. Is it a deficit? The compassionate deficit people. <laughs> compassionate deficit disorder. And, um, you know, and heaven forbid, then we'll send them to Stanford <laughs> to take the compassion training. We'll give them a special plaque for their cars, compassion disorder. And uh, I, think we, I think we want to treat everyone the first approach is to treat everyone as a gift. As this is how their minds operate. And so this woman who asked me for a guarantee said, I can't quite give you the guarantee. I don't know. 99% of the time, I think most people, yes, uh, spiritual liberation brings a lot of compassion. But I, wait, I can't guarantee it. So she was disappointed in me. It wasn't what she wanted to hear. So for me, in, in my practice, um, I didn't start practicing to be compassionate. I didn't start practicing really out of caring for anybody except for myself. And what happened was that um, as uh, the, the crust, the hard armor of my heart began to dissolve, uh, then I started to become more sensitive, more attentive to the people around me. And then uh, the, uh, what feels like a very natural caring for others uh, grew stronger and stronger. And I feel it's one of the great gifts that this practice gave me is the gift of compassion. The fact that now I care and 
Uh, compassion now is the f- uh, fundamental operating principle that's behind how I've chosen to live my life. Um, without, you know, without doing, without this compassion thing going, um, you know, I'd be, I'd probably have a sailboat. And, <laughs> you know, I like sailing, sailing off into the, into the sunset. And um, so this idea of, you know, so that's, so for many people, I think that's often happens that uh, as they kind of um, develop uh, the sensitivity that mindfulness is, that uh, the capacity for caring for others becomes stronger. And this seems to have been the assumption of the Buddha, the expectation he had of people who were doing this practice. He never really, as far as I can tell, he never really was explicit about it, didn't lay it out, you know, cause and effect, and this is what's going to happen. It was more like it just taken for granted that people become more compassionate. After uh, the story goes that after the first 60 followers of the Buddha became enlightened, uh, he sent them off. He said, no two of you go on the same road. Spread yourself out across the lands and and go out, go forth for the good of the many, for the welfare of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for this world. So that's a beautiful statement. So this was Buddha's instructions for people who attained what he was pointing to. When I was practicing in uh, Burma, many of us who practiced there had been very much influenced by kinds of Buddhism where compassion was really important, loving kindness was emphasized. And we were there doing a very intensive mindfulness practice. It's like, you know, all the waking hours of the day you were supposed to very intensely meditating, very intensely engaged in being mindful, being present for this experience. And uh, one of the early teachings I got during that time in Burma was a teacher said, forget about compassion. (laughs) 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 You know, don't do that here. (laughs) And, and, you know, it sounds kind of, you know, kind of, it's kind of like a pretty striking, pretty challenging idea. What? Um, but I don't think he meant don't have any compassion or, you know, we're not, but rather uh, don't get sidetracked. Stay on track with what we're doing here. Because, because, and I, I would say this, I don't know if he's thought this, but I believe this, stay on track with the developing mindfulness and you develop the sensitivity, you develop the openness, you develop the clarity through which compassion can operate. But if you focus on compassion in that setting, intensive retreat, if you focus on it too early, then um, uh, for him, you know, I think he felt that that was going to slow down the progress and growth of compassion. So that's one, one particular view. Some people find that the opposite is the most true for them. That some people find that the cultivation of loving kindness and compassion is the foundation that allows mindfulness to grow. And so that's what they, the most useful thing to do is to, to cultivate and develop that. But this interplay between mindfulness and compassion, I think they're closely connected, in mindfulness and love. Um, one way I think of it is that, um, you know, I, I wear glasses, and um, occasionally in my life, someone has come to me and said, Gil, can I have your glasses for a moment? And uh, I said, well, yeah, I said, sure. <laughs> and I give it to them, and they clean them. <laughs> and then I put them on again, and wow, <laughs> wow, you know, 
you're so beautiful. I, d <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> and um, because sometimes, you know, the dirt kind of builds up slowly, slowly. And, and um, in the old days, I didn't have much of a habit of, you know, of automatically cleaning my glasses every day. But so the dirt would build and someone had to clean it for me. So, um, so the same thing with our hearts. That what we're trying to do is to clear the heart of the dirt that's there, the dust that's covered. And, uh, and then we can see clearly. Then love and compassion, if it's going to be there, can flow cl clearly. And so this idea of dwell dwelling independent, not clinging to anything, is the idea that clinging, having the mind dependent in the old world, what it means that the, the mind needs something, wants something, is uh, requiring something. So it's like without requiring anything for the mind. You require food, you require all kinds of things that we require to live on. But to have awareness not require anything is very different. To have somehow, it's like having an open hand. The hand doesn't require to hold anything anymore. And then the hand can go around and take care of things in your life much better. If I have the striker and I like it and I'm attached to it, but I never let it down, never let it out of my hand, then the hand's not useful for much. If I'm clinging, in my heart, in my mind, to my self-identity, to my pleasure, to my status, to my relationships that I have, all kinds of things, uh, then that very clinging interferes with um, clarity. It interferes with like having dust across the glasses, or it's like having your hands always closed, and so it's not so useful. And it can be very challenging to consider that your relationships are improved if you don't cling to them. We're so, you know, it's so important for us, our relationships, that, you know, to other people and all kinds of things, that, is it, is, you know, you don't want to let go. You, the loss of it, the fear of losing it. So some people hold on even closer and tighter. One of the very strong places where that occurs is with the people in your primary family. Like if you're a parent with children, there can be a very strong clinging and desire do th I know that fr in seeing myself as a parent, that there are times when um, my clinging, my attachment to my children, has taken forms which are not that healthy to the, to the detriment of my kids. And it's been really clear that I'm better off sometimes not being attached to them, their, the outcome, what's going on, that it gives them room to breathe, gets, lets, gives them room to find themselves and to be themselves. But that's a very hard lesson to learn, to trust, maybe to trust that it's okay not to cling, that it's actually for the betterment of everyone, for ourselves and others. So in San Quentin on Friday, there was a man there, one of, the, one of these, probably had been a murderer, he'd been part of a notorious gang inner city gang, and uh, <coughs> he had started to do programs. San Quentin is pretty wonderful. It's the only state prison that has lots and lots of programs for the prisoners to take, for the inmates to take. Educational programs, uh, uh, self-help programs, spiritual programs, all kinds of programs. And the reason why San Quentin has so many is because it's in an urban area. 
So there's all these people in the Bay Area who are willing to volunteer their services and help. And most of those programs are done by volunteers. So it's free for the state. And, um, but the prisoners who are up in Pelican Bay or way out there, so I don't know what it's called, there's a, I mean, the most, of the, most of the prisons are up in the boonies. And there's no the people around there, there's so few people there who can go around and offer their services. So the people, the inmates are up there have no, you know, way of going through this program. So St. Quentin's lucky. So, so people, this, this man had gone through a number of these programs, including this, um, and he was quite transformed. So transformed that he had gone through this guiding rage into power program that uh, he had been invited, ba invited back to become a facilitator, to be trained to teach this program to other inmates. And so everyone in the program was quite surprised one day when they discovered and they heard that he'd been sent to the hole. He'd been sent to solitary confinement. Because, you know, it's so changed. They thought that, you know, what could he, you know, what happened to him? It, he was committed to not being violent anymore. What happened? So he was there for 60 days, I think. And then he came out and they found out what happened. And I think maybe it wasn't until he came out that he himself found out what happened. So he, <laughs> He didn't know why he was sent to the solitary confinement. And he said, the but anyway, what happened the first, uh, I'll tell you, maybe you should tell you know why. Um, there was a rumor that someone in the prison who had belonged to this notorious gang was going to uh, do some violence to someone else in the prison. So, but there was no name, no one was, you know, just this rumor, this idea. And so, there's a certain logic then to taking everyone who had been in that gang who's in the prison and putting them all in solitary confinement because then they're, you know, then it's, that's safe, right? So he just, so he, being, having been part of this gang, he, without having done anything that deserved it, except, he said, except for my past, I still have to live with my past and take the consequences of it. Um, but, you know, so he had to, he was put in solitary confinement and I guess he'd never been there because he thought, oh, <laughs> apparently he thought, oh, good, uh, quiet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he'd been to solitary confinement maybe in other prisons where it had been quiet. But he said, St. Quentin solitary is not quiet. People are yelling and screaming 24 hours a day. And it's really, you know, it's a, a ruckus. It's, you know, and you're there in the cell by yourself. There's nothing there. And he said, for the first two weeks, I just stood there in my cell, thinking and thinking, why did this happen to me? It's not fair. I've done all this work and nothing happened. This is the consequence of it. And just going reviewing, going over and over and over, two weeks. After two weeks, he said, you know, I don't think this is working, you know, in this context to do this. What, you know, what if I try meditating? So he tried and he could meditate for about two minutes before the noise around him got to him. But he kept at it, and he would go back to his meditation, and slowly, slowly over the weeks, uh, he was able to meditate longer and longer, until he got up to an hour, and then longer. And he would just do much of that during the day. And then he said, with a smile on his face, that at some point, uh, a number of times, I fell into um, complete stillness and silence inside and everything, all the noise of the prison receded into the background. But then I got uh, 
uh, excited about the stillness and that come out. <laughs> he said, he said, there's a whole other thing to learn to be really still that way and not excited. Because he hadn't learned that yet. And, um, and so with that, he, he, you know, with that ability to become independent of his environment, <clears throat> to not cling to anything in his, the injustice or his past or all kinds of things, he discovered a very deep peace there during his 60 days in solitary confinement. And then he was let out and back in the program, so I got to meet him on Friday. And part of the reason I want to tell you about this man was, was not only because of that story, but because uh, he was now tra uh, training to offer this to the other inmates in the prison. That uh, the gift that he'd gotten, what he'd learned, he was turning around and he was, with his compassion, his care, was offering it back to the others. And so this idea that it comes around the practice and, um, and we can, um, you know, 99% of the time, I think, our hearts become such that we want to give back, we want to offer, we, want to, we, we have sensitivity and care for the world. That the mindfulness externally to the world around us is a very important part of what keeps our heart open and what helps us to open and helps helps us to go forward. But it's very important not to assume that with freedom that your life has to look any particular way. Um, you don't have to be a Buddhist. You don't have to be compassionate. Don't be cruel. <laughs> But you don't have to, you know, it doesn't have to look some way. It doesn't have to be like you have to become, you know, Mother Teresa. You don't have to become a Dharma teacher. You don't have to become a um, anything. Um, many years ago, someone told me that uh, when I was young, someone said, um, if you discover what you enjoy doing <clears throat> and do it well and really enjoy it, that that helps other people. So someone who, for example, the example was given to me was this musician, someone who really does their mu music out of great joy. That's also a gift to the world, to see that's possible. And so I say that because sometimes in spiritual circles, there is a kind of tyranny of compassion that goes on. That, you know, you're supposed to kind of, you know, go work in, go, you know, work in soup kitchens. It's great to work in soup kitchens for some people. And the idea is that as we become more free, free of our own suffering, free of our own clinging, that maybe we can trust what the free heart is about. We can trust what the free mind is about. But then we'll find what our thing is. We'll do what seems appropriate for us. And some people take huge leaps of changing their life radically and end up uh, doing some, you know, something very powerful that supports and trains other people, helps others. And some people uh, play their musical instruments or take better, the mechanics take better care of their cars they, they fix and the customers that they serve. That somehow, what, and we, find, we find what, what is our thing. But I think that because we're so interdependent that the people who learn how to be independent 
allow the interdependent world to move most beautifully, most cleanly, most helpfully. We can't get away from the interdependent world, but we want to live in it without our clinging. We want to live in it without causing further harm. We want to, we'd like to live in this world so that our lives benefits it. But how it benefits it depends on the gift of each person. Each person's going to be different. And it doesn't have to look any particular way, but your way, what it looks like. So there's the inner freedom. There's the outer freedom, where we're, no long, we're not clinging to anything whatsoever in the world. And then out of that, the door opens. And how you step through that door into the world and to live this world is up to you. But I trust the, I trust the good heart of all of us. And if you're free, you'll find your way to live, to benefit others. So those are my thoughts for today. I hope that, that those of you remember the talk a few weeks ago. I hope that this um, follows up well, well in it. <laughs>